Open with me to Luke 8, if you would. We're going to finish out the chapter today. I'm going to go ahead and forewarn you. The stage was creaking right here Wednesday night. Somebody too big has probably been standing here more often than normal. I don't know who that would be. So we're either going to have to fix their stage here at the Bib Center or move the pulpit or something. But I forgot about that. I, I mentioned it to some folks Wednesday night, and then I forgot all about it. Um, before today, so you're going to hear it creak today again, I guess, and then let's just all be in prayer that I don't fall through. (laughs) We are focused on the theme of trusting Jesus as we close out Luke chapter number 8, and we have here four examples of trusting him. Last time we looked at trusting him with disaster, we looked at trusting him with demons, and today we're going to see trusting him with disease and trusting him with death. Let's read initially just verse 40 down through verse 43. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he only had one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay dying But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stanched. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for time together with your church and your word this morning. We want to grow by your word. We want to be led of your Holy Spirit. So we ask your blessing upon this time. Not only will we be fed and filled and grow in your word right now, but I ask that you would increase our desire to be in it tonight and tomorrow and the next day. Lord, may we truly be revived as we just sang. May your spirit fall like fire from above. May our souls be rekindled. May we have renewed passions for Biblical living. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What do you guys call the ruler's name here? I grew up with being called Jarius. We got any Jarius people in here? Is that a Georgia thing? Or you just don't like to raise your hand in church? But it's not Jarius, it's Jairus. But then I, when I say that, it just it doesn't sound right in my ears from my own voice there. Anybody else have a pronunciation? Jairus. Air. Ah, that sounds better. Jairus. Thanks. Now I've got to make sure I say it the rest of the day that way. So the story here of Jairus is divided by the account of this lady with the issue of blood. To just catch us up with the context of the story here, Jesus has gone back across the Sea of Galilee. He had gone over to what Luke called the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, this country there across this sea. And as he comes back across, these people are gathered waiting for him there. And Jairus, a synagogue ruler, is anxious for Jesus' help here. His 12-year-old daughter is dying. And as they go, this country or this crowd in the country there is heavy around Jesus. Jesus is headed to Jairus' house. And this crowd is heavy around him. And that's where we pick up what we began reading in verse number 43. 
this story of a lady with a disease of blood. Let's read that. Um, we, we read through 44, so let's pick up in verse 45. And Jesus said that she's touched him, she's been healed. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. And she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was immediately healed. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. So Luke tells us about this lady who has been sick with this disease for 12 years. I think that is unique because we also read that Jairus' daughter in verse 42 was about 12 years old. Now I'm not going to give you a spill on Bible numerology and how you can trace unique things there. But numbers in the Bible do seem to coincide and have and carry meanings with them there. So as Luke records these two stories together for us, it is unique that Jairus' daughter is 12 years old, and then this lady has had this sickness for 12 years. I like Wearsby's take on it. He says, Jairus has been blessed with 12 years of joy with his daughter, and now might lose her while the woman had experienced 12 years of misery because of her affliction, and now she was hoping to get well. So you still have 12 years there of something being done. Well, we have recorded by Luke that this lady has spent every dime she has on her health care. Now, Mark is even meaner. If you go over and read Mark's account of this, does anybody know what else Mark adds to the story? Yeah, somebody said it there. Mark said she not only had she spent all the money she had, but she got worse. Well, that's horrible, isn't it? I mean, she's for 12 years had this sickness. She spent everything she could get together to help fund getting better from this sickness, and she's just gotten worse at, in, in all of this. Due to their religious laws of the day there, a person with this type of disease was considered ceremonially unclean. It had to do with the blood. She couldn't enter the temple. She couldn't participate in public worship. She couldn't touch other people, or they too would also be considered ceremonially unclean. So this brings to light an additional level of distress in this lady's situation. Isolation. Bill Riken says, People suffering from chronic illness often suffer with isolation as their physical limitations cut them off from social interaction. I point this out simply to help make the point of her desperation and then also her secrecy and just kind of going along in the crowd, touching the hem of Jesus' garment by faith. But I also point it out because I think often in the church, we mean well and we want to help, but likely we, we mistake actually what help could be. Lonely people don't need money. Lonely people need friends. We can't forget that. But this woman would have been an outcast. Out of necessity, she would have... Some of you looked at me like, well, they need money too. Okay, so they need money too. Everybody needs a little money, right? But, but we can't stop there. Let me say it that way. Out of necessity, this lady would have pulled away from physical contact, including with members of her own family. So 
I want us to imagine here, and, and I don't know that I'm right, but, but make this, go, go with me here. It's been 12 long years since this woman has been embraced by anyone. I mean, for some of us, that's a daily thing. Some of you, it's only a weekly thing when somebody accidentally hugs you at church and you didn't mean for them to. I got one of you this morning. You, you weren't expecting it. I did the old bro hug thing. I got you by the hand and jerked you in and patted you on the back there. And you looked at me like, what was that? The one that I did that to you, you know who you are, and I'm going to tell you publicly. It's because I was proud of you about something, so I just couldn't hold my, myself together there. I'm not typically a hugger, but I was I hugged today. I, I thought there would be roaring applause there. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Doesn't mean the same now that I had to tell you to do it. This lady is, there's been none of that. There couldn't have been any of this. There's a lot of implications from this disease in her society, in her culture, in her religion, in the hygiene part of all of this. There just wasn't any hugging. There wasn't any embracing. She constantly not only did not experience this physical and emotional warmth, but She also had to be careful not to be touching anybody else. So she comes through this crowd secretly. She just touches the border of the hem of Jesus' garment there. And verse 44 tells us she is healed instantly. It says she came behind him, touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stopped. Now, as we saw earlier, well... I tell you, I'm bad to miss just the excitement and the the, the greatness of the miracle. Before I just go right past that, what a blessing this must have been for this lady. She took a step of faith and she was healed. And, And she knew it so much so that Jesus sensed it, made a point out of it. Luke recorded it for us in the Gospels. It was recorded in other Gospels as well. Praise the Lord, right? What a miraculous thing. If you're if you're dealing with a physical ailment here this morning, that's exactly what you're hoping for in your praying, right? I mean, you'll take a long-term healing. You'll take that the medical treatment works. But in reality, if you woke up tomorrow and it was gone, you would just be like, oh, this is, this is better. Right? Absolutely this is better. So praise the Lord for that. But I also want to point out to you here what we've pointed out throughout this study in Luke and these miracles that Jesus is doing here. He continually is reversing societal norms. She was not supposed to touch him because it would make him unclean. So to fix that, Jesus makes her clean so that she could touch him. If that doesn't speak to you, you're not a Christian. Like You've never been redeemed yourself because you've never been in her shoes, at least spiritually. I've never been in her shoes physically, but I've been in those shoes, a sinner unsaved by God's grace, and then God's grace shined into my life like a bright light and Jesus reversed what was going on inside of me and what a glorious day that was we sing that song oh what a glorious glorious day day I will never forget when heaven came down and glory filled my soul what a blessing that was well here she experienced that physically initially and then through Jesus's words spiritually as well but I just love the fact that Jesus Reverses these societal norms for humans. Oh, you, you can't touch that dead man 
or you'll, you'll be unclean like his, he is because he's dead. Well, let's just make him alive again. There's a solution. Well, you can't be around this lady with this blood disease because she's unclean. Well, let's just make her clean and then I can be around her. Praise the Lord that God is willing to get over our sin sickness and our mess for us. Mm. Praise the Lord. Peter then goes into verse 45. This, this telling Jesus he's asked a silly question. And, and you've got to love Peter for this. Peter is Mr. I stick my foot in my mouth a whole lot. You know, Jesus tells them at the, on the night of his arrest, they're talking about swords, how many should we get? And Jesus tells them they should get some swords. And then finally they won't shut up about it, as men like to do when it comes to guns and swords and all of this stuff. And Jesus said, that's enough of that. And then they come to arrest him. And, and Peter cuts this dude's ear off here, you know. You know, Jesus has just been clear on like, no, 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 I've got to be arrested. All through his ministry, he's talked about this. My, this is my hour. This is the time. Oh, good old Peter. <laughs> well, here's one of my favorite Peter instances. Look at verse 45. Jesus asked, who touched me? And when all denied, now parents, you know what that's like. Who, who made this mess? What, me. Peter and they that were with him said, Master, you got to kind of throw that like sarcastic, accusatory tone to what Peter's saying here. Master, he said it in respect, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and sayest thou, who touched me? Now that's very much in old English, right? The multitude thronged thee. We don't talk like that anymore. So let's, let's talk about it in Tennessee. Jesus, there's all these people around you, and you're trying to say, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. If you're worried about getting COVID, Jesus. <laughs> I like here how Dr. R.C. Sproul writes in his commentary about this verse. He doesn't cut Peter any slack either, but he uses bigger words than I would have. He says, Peter in his... Inimitable, impetuous spirit said, aren't those great words? I like that. I would almost feel complimented with that insult given toward me. He says, what is the matter with you, Jesus? Can't you see that every time you take a step here, you are jostled and bumped? And you are asking us who touched you? How are we supposed to know who touched you? Well, Jesus hadn't asked a silly question. It only seemed that way to Peter. There's a great point to be made here. Peter, in that instance, is only thinking about the temporal. He's only thinking about the physical. In this moment, he's not focused on the eternal or the spiritual. Now, I won't completely fault Peter, because I think he's busy dealing with something that is spiritual. We've got to hurry up and get Jesus to Jairus' house. But in this moment, he says, what do you mean who touched you? Human nature will always miss the spiritual if we let it. Peter's been around Jesus enough to know that when he speaks, it's not in waste. When he says something, there's meaning to it. He's, it's, just, it's not just small talk. It's not just his curiosity. He's not wondering, you know, who I felt a tug. 
did somebody need me? He's making a point here. But if we're not careful, we all will miss the point of Luke recording for us Peter's silly question. Or Peter saying Jesus has a silly question. It makes me think about the miracle of the feeding the 5,000. The disciples do the same thing there. Jesus said, they said, this multitude's hungry, and Jesus said, give them food to eat. And you, you put yourself in this, the shoes of these disciples at this point. Well, well, number one, even if we had enough money, which we don't, that sounds like some church finance committee meetings. But we serve the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, don't we? But even if we had enough, our finance team met Wednesday night. I wasn't talking about you guys. I'm just trying to make a joke. I love you. They said, even if we had enough money, which we don't, there still wouldn't be enough food to buy with that money to feed this many people all in this instance. They said, that Jesus, there is literally no way. Were they right? There literally was a way. The way was Jesus. And he, he fed them. And, and just to sort of flex his muscles a little bit more, or just to prove who he was and what he was capable of and what he was doing here a little bit more, or for a multitude of other reasons, when that, when that was done, everybody ate till they were full, they gathered up 12 baskets of that which remained. Well, so it is with God's power in all aspects. It's ever opposite human thinking. Now, I don't mean spiritually minded human thinking that's led of the Holy Spirit. I mean carnal human thinking who's forgotten that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and given wisdom from the Word on how we ought to operate. The power of God working in our society will always be backwards to the societal norm of the day, no matter the day. It will often be a last resort if it even is a resort. Instead of Peter concluding this is impossible, instead of us often concluding this is impossible like Peter did here, why don't we, like Jesus, live as if nothing is impossible? Isn't that how he lived his life? Everywhere he went, every day of his life, everything he did, Jesus' mentality is, well, it's how this book began. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Anybody know that verse? Yes, based off where we are. With men, this is impossible. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. Nothing at all. And do you remember the context of that verse? Mary asks an honest question, how can this thing be? See, I've never known a man. And God said, oh, nothing will be impossible. And you know, if Mary was a student of the word... I'm going to assume she probably was, because once she was told that, she was okay with it, it seems. She's already seen instances of this thing not being impossible with Hannah. This thing not being impossible with Sarah. This thing not being impossible multiple times in the line of Christ all throughout the Old Testament. It's just proof again and again and again to you and I that with God, nothing will be impossible. But, but we're just living like Peter, aren't we? I mean, on the way to see Jesus do a miracle, Peter's not questioning going to Jairus' house here. He's trying to help him get through the crowd. 
And in the midst of that, he's even questioning the ability of Jesus to know who touched him and why they touched him. Or why, why do we even get in, need to get into this? Peter is saying. You get sidetracked like that in your faith? We seem to think nothing is impossible with God in regards to salvation. But then everything else is up for grabs. I believe he can save me, but but I don't don't know if we're going to be able to buy groceries this week. You mean he can save you, but he can't feed you? Well, there was that one time where the cupboards were slim. You're still standing. Amen. You've heard my sack of potatoes story. We, we got down to one sack of potatoes because Jack Strickland's father at 26 years old decided he needed to go to college. And little Jack Strickland at three years... You, oh, you told me to quit talking about you. I'm sorry, Jack. Big Jack Strickland don't like to be talked about from the pulpit. So this other kid that I knew... With tears in his eyes, driving away from Gainesville, Georgia, said, I said, what's wrong with you, man? We were in this huge moving truck, big diesel engine, wham, wham, you know, and I thought, this is great. And my little boy's crying his eyes out. I thought he's either scared or something else is wrong with him. And he said, Dad, why can't you just go to college when you're a kid like everybody else? Some of you have had the blessing of hearing Brother Mike Owens preach. East Tennessee mountain preacher. Love Brother Mike Owens. You've heard him tell the story of the, the double yolk eggs. How many of you have heard that? You remember that story? That was wonderful. Him and his wife were early starting out. He was working at a factory. Things were tight. They had enough money. They bought a loaf of bread, a jar of mayonnaise because we're Southerners. Money's tight, but we're going to get some mayonnaise. Amen. Name that brand. And a dozen eggs, thinking we'll fry eggs, we'll scramble eggs, we'll make egg sandwiches, and that'll get us through till payday. But they still were worried it wasn't going to be enough. And as they started cracking open eggs on that first day, everyone in that dozen was double yoked, so they got twice for their money. <laughs> I believe God can save me, but I don't know if he'll feed me. I believe God will save me, but I don't know if he'll heal me. I believe God can save me, but I don't know if he's going to provide for me. In what way? I mean, what is it you're doubting him in this morning? And I don't mean doubting him like fully, like you're not acting in faith. You're at church. You're gathered with the church for worship here. But I imagine there's still some doubt in you somewhere. This is what I did with verse 45 for me. Are you trusting Jesus? In this context, we would say, are you trusting Jesus with disease? Or have you concluded that this is impossible? Well, Jesus explains why he asked in verse 46. Jesus said, somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. Now, he doesn't mean here somebody has bumped into him, somebody has shaken his hand, somebody has brushed him along the way. What he is saying here is he can tell something has happened with power. Now, we have it recorded here in 1600s English, 1900s English The word virtue. Virtue has gone out of me. But I would say to you this morning that the English word virtue incompletely communicates to us in English exactly what Jesus said then. I'm not saying the word is wrong, but because Jesus did mean virtue, meaning goodness has gone out of me. 
But the Greek word that Luke used to communicate this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit means more than just goodness. The Greek word is dunamis. Now that word means, who knows what it means? Power. Power has gone out of me. And when you mince that with goodness, what you mean is divine power. This supernatural power. This omnipotent power. This very power that he had to be able to heal. And he says, this has gone out of me and healed this woman. Now let's be clear what we're talking about here when we understand this. Because if we're not careful, we make this a nice sweet Sunday school lesson that everybody's comfortable with. This lady touched the hem of Jesus' garment and virtue went out of him. And she's all better and everybody's happy. That's not what happened here. The power of God came out of Jesus and into this woman to heal her body. That's a step you don't need to miss. Power. I I talked with that some last week, and I'm going to leave it alone. But I just want to be clear, that's still what we're talking about here. Phil Riken clarifies for us, saying, People were always touching Jesus, but they were not always getting healed. This is true. There's a great lesson here. Many were part of this crowd. There were his followers here. There was Jairus here. There was this lady. There were all of these others that made up this multitude that were thronging him. But only some of these people in this crowd were actually being helped. But what about the rest? Were they just simply entertained? Was this something to take up their time throughout their day? Was it something, I don't think this was something that had just become, this is what you're supposed to do. But my goodness, hasn't that become the thing now? I mean, are you here gathering with the church, worshiping God because of the power? Are you here because it's Sunday morning? Let me build on that point for you a little bit. When the tornado took us away from the building that we worship in, it became pretty clear to me, I'm not going to accuse us of this, I'm going to say I suspect, and I'm careful with my own self in this regard, but it became clear to me that we borderline worship the building. And the day, and the time of day, that we gathered in that place. And I came to know that through several things, but one of the clues for me was when we decided to start talking about where we were going to actually meet, one of the initial easiest places to do it would be in another church building. First ones to come to our aid here were our dear friends in Pegram at Pegram Church of Christ. Nice as could be, right off the bat, hey, our whole building is yours, whatever you need, you know, we'll just have to work out the scheduling of this. Now, I'm not going to dig too deep into this, but I'm going to tell you, it doesn't do a lot of Baptist hearts good to be thinking about meeting at a, a Church of Christ church. But it got a little more complicated than that, and a lot, lot more petty than that. They meet over there on Sundays. So when would we meet? Well, pretty much any other day. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, that won't fly. What, is God limited? Like, I like meeting on the first day of the week. That's when the early church met. Why? 
You know, your, your Christians, why do they meet on the first day of the week? Everybody's afraid to answer now. I've got us guilty here. Not the Sabbath. They met on the first day of the week because of the resurrection. After the Sabbath was passed, they began to meet on what we call the Lord's Day because that's when Jesus was, that's how we are at the church. My, my overarching point here being this tendency toward idolatry, this tendency toward clinging to things, this tendency to be very comfortable and feel like God's very comfortable with us just because we make up part of the crowd. I'm there whether I get help or not, whether I'm part of the power or not. In fact, most of you sit here this morning and hear me talk about that, and you're like, I'll be glad when we get out of these verses because I'm not comfortable with that power talk every week. Well, I'm going to tell you a little secret about me. I'm not comfortable not talking about the power every week. Amen. Wearsby said, you can be a part of the crowd and never get any blessing from being near Jesus. It is one thing to press him and another thing to touch him by faith. We may not have strong faith, but we do have a strong Savior. And he responds even to a touch at the hem of his garment. Do you see the difference there? There's a difference in bumping into Jesus. There's a difference in shaking his hand than reaching out in faith and thinking, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I will be whole. This is how you probably were at the moment of your salvation. But now often we live our Christian lives like differently. Like we we have to grow up and be different in our faith. You remember when the disciples decided that it needed to be mature around Jesus? These kids were coming and don't bother the master. What did Jesus say? Let Samuel cry. Let Jackson run around. Let Ruth color in the floor. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. (laughs) I know some of you white tops have had littles out of your house so long that it's a little bit distracting in church that children make noise. Man, it's music to my ears. It sure beats the grumble of church members. (laughs) I'm going to update you tonight on the status of the building. But while I was trying to love on you this morning, and I know I'm, I'm scoring at a bunch of you, it was so rough having to tell each of you individually about the status of the building. I'm as disappointed that the building's not fixed as you are. And I also wish it was going faster. But I still like you. And I want to know what you did this week and where you've been and what you've been up to. And I want to tell you about my kids. You didn't like that one so much, did you? I don't, mean, I don't mean for you to not ask me about it. We've we got to talk about it. It's part of life right now. McDonald says, No one ever touches Jesus by faith without his knowing it and without receiving a blessing. No one ever confesses him openly without being strengthened in assurance of salvation. Now, this woman had approached Jesus privately, but Jesus made it very public. Verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hid, <laughs> that's, got, that's got very spiritual connotations as well. It's physical in Luke's account here. But do you remember when that was you? When Holy Spirit conviction got on you? That's very theological, isn't it? But when Holy Spirit conviction of God gets on you, you realize one thing for sure, I'm no longer hid. 
I remember that night. Prior to that night at, at, at my church, I was a good little church boy. I wore a canary yellow sports jacket on Sunday mornings. But all of a sudden on this Wednesday night, the Holy Spirit of God began to convict me of my lost condition and of my sinning. And I realized that I was not hid. The whole embarrassment of adults noticing me or thinking about me or talking about me went completely away as I went from one adult to the next trying to find one who could help me get saved. I was bound and determined to get saved right then and there that night. I've talked to some of you and that's confusing to you because you've never experienced it. I would encourage you to try to experience it. Jesus, she realized she was not hid. She came trembling. She fell down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Now, there's an important note about what happened then for our practices now because we are often like her. Private prayers, private needs, private concerns. We long to just be a face in the crowd. For a long time, our church kind of became a transitional church for people going from the cross point church model, which is um, uh, their theme, everyone's welcome. And they, they work really hard on being having a friendly lobby, friendly faces out front, easy to get into, easy to get out of. You can easily just be a face in the crowd and go to church, right? I commend them in their ability to do that. Churches like ours aren't so good at that. In fact, the running joke about churches like ours are it stinks to be the first-time guests at a church like ours because it's like they hadn't met a new person in five weeks. Everybody's all over you. Is that how you guys felt your first couple times? No comment. <laughs> That's fantastic. But, you know, we're kind of like, oh, a new person. <laughs> I'm okay with that. It's just how it is. What are you going to do, right? You could, you could try to educate the crowd. You could try to come up with your, your philosophies and your policies. When it comes right down to it, folks have just got to be folks, and that's how it is. And if you like us, you like us. If you don't, you don't. In reality, when the power of the Holy Spirit says it should be, those filled with the Holy Spirit will be perfectly comfortable here or there or anywhere. I like that one so much I almost amen my own preaching. <laughs> but for some reason, we've gotten awfully private. We don't want to be noticed. We don't want to share. Well, well, I know the reason. The reason is because this has stopped being the family of God and has started being the institution of God. The reason this has started being the institution of God is because we've institutionalized every other portion of our lives. A child is born and goes off to an institution. I mean like day six months. There we go. My sister runs daycare. She's been up here this week for a visit. We've been talking about daycares. And then it's off to school. And then it's off to college. And then it's off to marriage. Which means you're off to a corporation to work for your job. And I know everybody doesn't do it exactly like that. But we're a very institutionalized mind people. And over time... Since the Industrial Revolution and the advent of the city, Preston and I have been watching Lord of the Rings. We've been talking about how Tolkien didn't like the machines. Starting to not like the machines myself. Well, some, like, I like my lawnmower. I don't want to be out there with a, one of those things. I don't even know what it's called. <laughs> don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> 
We've institutionalized church. Well, what does that mean? Well, you've got to have a starting time and a stopping time, number one, right? Because you're all, y'all are already looking. It's 1125. He hasn't even got to point two. We're only in verse 47, and he wants to get through 56. <laughs> when I, the church I grew up in, we, we started, as Aunt Redonna is my witness, we started, when did we start church? Why? You didn't even have to hear me say it. When we got done commun- like checking in on everybody in our church family, we started the service. And when do we end church? Whenever. <laughs> Give me some times. Give me some, some time. Yeah, there, there you go. We started at 11, 15. The singing stopped at 12 usually. I mean, about right about then. We could always spot, it was a bigger congregation than this, we could always spot a first-time guest because they just go on and go home after the singing because they thought we were done. We weren't done. We were taking recess. Our preacher would come up and say, all right, let's have a time of fellowship. No, we'd already fellowship for 20 minutes to start the day, but we're going to have a time of fellowship too. That meant go to the bathroom, get your water, get your stick of bubble gum from little Miss Smith who was on the second row there who handed out bubble gum to everybody. Do your thing, whatever you got to do, get refreshed. Now sit down after an hour singing because we might have an hour of preaching. Or after the preaching, we might sing for another hour after that. We don't know however the Holy Spirit leads. There were some times during the singing that the Holy Spirit would do some preaching. People would pray and people would testify. People would be helped. People would be moved. And we'd get to that break time point and the preacher would say honestly to us now this was either because the holy spirit was leading or he didn't have a sermon you have to determine which one when you get into this kind of a practicing he would say i felt like the holy spirit has already done more than i could ever do with my little sermon i've got for you today so why don't we just all go home and we go home it was that was just normal i didn't know that church was different than that now i gotta say that doesn't fit my personality when we moved to Virginia and we had to church shop, we found this little church that was pretty much Harpeth in Virginia. And we started at 11 and we got out at 12, usually 11.59 to give you time to get to the back door and in your car with your seatbelt on before 12. And I remember saying to Sinead, oh, that's pretty nice. And we still went to church. I've been very patient at Harpeth, I've been your pastor now since the first Sunday of 2011. So what is this, 10 years? Is it 11 years? I, the math is tough on me. But i got to be honest, the older I get, the more I realize i got less time. Anybody say amen there? And I... I'm all about patience because I think it's a bad idea, especially in church practice, for the preacher to come in and just say, I'm the preacher now and this is how we're going to do it. That always goes over great, doesn't it? With any group of people, you just tell them, oh, we're changing everything. It never works. But more and more, every Sunday I come in and I kind of miss the way I was raised. I miss the whole, like, like, you seen the Andy Griffith show? There's an Andy Griffith episode about this. This is not something new that I'm just coming up with here. This is a societal problem. 
There's a whole episode of the Andy Griffith Show where the visiting preacher preaches a sermon. Do you all remember the sermon I'm thinking about? What's your hurry? <laughs> what is our hurry? My suspicion is our hurry is there is no power, so what's the point? So let's do our duty and get on out of here. We're often like this lady. She saw that she was not hid. She'd preferred to be hid. She preferred to just be a face in the crowd. Now, I don't think Jesus brings attention to her for his sake. I think it is for her, and I think it's for sure for the crowd around them at this time. Jesus called her out to give a public testimony of God working in her life. At first, she was afraid to be exposed. I don't think Jesus is trying to embarrass her. I know he's not trying to embarrass her. But he is giving her an opportunity to glorify God. Now, everyone knew how she had been healed by reaching out and touching Jesus. By openly declaring this, she brought honor to her Savior's name. And her Savior's response to her was this in verse 48. He said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. I like that he doesn't call her by name. I like that he doesn't call her lady. I like that he just calls her daughter. Luke capitalizes it. Uh, he, he makes it proper here. There's a distinction being made. He's speaking about her new position in the family. Her faith had made her whole physically, but her faith had made her whole spiritually. He talks about her faith. So we see in the title, Daughter, this at least a pointing toward the doctrine of adoption. We see in the term faith being used here that this is accomplished. We are justified by faith alone. And then we see peace comes from that. Physical, spiritual peace. Even social peace. Sproul summarizes Jesus' actions here. He says, with these few words, the woman recovered her health and her dignity because she had been noticed and ministered to by God incarnate. Isn't that a wonderful thought? He not only recovered her health, he recovered her dignity. God will do that for you. Now, let's go back to Jairus. Already we've read verse 40, 41, and 42 as Jairus comes to Jesus bows at his feet, and asks for help. Now, can you imagine that anyone had ever seen Jairus like this? He's a man in charge. What did Luke say he was? A ruler of the synagogue. So he had the responsibility to oversee the teaching ministry and to lead in the public worship of God. He would be a person well-respected for his godliness. But here we find him bowing down at Jesus' feet and begging. He's desperate because his little girl is dying. There's no pride here. There's no demanding. There's no commanding. We find this man humbly imploring at Jesus' feet. And Jesus agrees to go. But along the way, he's, he's stalled with this lady. And during that time, something happens. Notice verse 49. While he yet spake. So Jesus is speaking to the lady who's been healed of her blood disease. While he spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, 
Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. So during that time of Jesus dealing with the lady of the issue of blood, Jairus' daughter, who was just sick, is now dead. That's a whole other situation, isn't it? Jesus, who has just illustrated the great power of faith, he tells Jairus to have faith. Verse 50, but when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Now I'm going to take some liberties with this text, but I want to point out something to you about the Christian life. You know, later in the disciples' lives, they were going to have to trust Jesus. Remember he said in John 14, I'm going away, but I will come again. And the instruction was there, while I'm gone, you do the work in faith that I will come again. The storm, the, the storm we read about last week in, in the boat on the sea, and Jesus went to sleep. They're rocking and reeling, thinking they're going to die. This was a faith training exercise for them for what great step of faith they would have to have later. I believe that's part of the Christian life. We kind of see that here, don't we? They're on the way to Jair's house. They get stalled. Human logic would say, boy... They hadn't had to waste time on that lady with that blood disease. They might have got to Jairus' daughter before it was too late and she might not have died. Isn't that how we think? Because it's, you know, hurry up and get the ambulance here. Call 911. What did we ever do before 911? We were watching a movie last night about pirates. Y'all seen this? Captain, uh, yeah, I was thinking Captain Ron, but it wasn't Captain Ron. Captain Phillips. Well, these pirates are going to get this American ship out there. It's a great movie. But I, he called 911 from the boat. It's a, it's a ship version of 911, and there was no answer. And I thought, well, what do they do now? There's no answer. What would you do if there was no answer? Well, we're, we have this urgency as hum, of human beings for, for all of these things, and this is new, is my point. We haven't always lived like this. But all of a sudden now, if they don't get here in time, I'm going to sue somebody. Why? They got there as quick as they could. They did their best. If they didn't do their best or they made a mistake, that's a whole other situation. But here, the logic is, if they hadn't been held up by this lady, but don't we feel like that was divine? You read the story. It seemed like God worked this out. It was on purpose. I think this is a step of faith for Jairus. I believe God in His sovereignty... And his omniscience was going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead all along. But I think God needed Jairus to have the faith for what was going to happen when it got ready to happen. And I think along the way it was very helpful that he saw a lady healed from this issue of blood after 12 years. So as you go through your Christian life and you begin to think to yourself, Boy, why can't I ever just get, get ahead? Why can't I ever have peace? Why can't I ever stop the struggle? Well, I promise you this. That today's mountain will seem like yesterday's molehill. And once you've climbed that one, through Jesus Christ, with the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, etc., you're strong enough for the next one. It's the, you know, the philosophical thing. The guy is told there's a door, the rock over the door and he's told push, but he never gets anywhere. He just push, push, push till he finally gives up. Then go look in the mirror, and he's, he's been made stronger just through the pushing. He never accomplished what he thought he was supposed to do, but boy, look what, what he had been made into. This is, this, that's the point I'm making. Well, 
Jesus' instruction is sure here. Fear not, believe only, she will be made whole. Faith and fear will always battle within you. Jesus' words are clear. Don't be afraid, only believe. And you have to choose. You have to choose to live your life either in faith or in fear. And every time you allow yourself to live in fear, it's going to eat away at your faith. And every time you operate in faith, you're going to have to have faith. But it will give you peace, even in situations that otherwise should be fearful. So either be afraid of all the things that might happen, or trust Jesus to see you through. If you're in a relationship with Him, you've already trusted Him with your eternal life. Well, what's bigger than that? What's more than your eternal life? Nothing at all. So surely you can also trust Him with death. Why is it that death gets us so much more than eternity? You realize how finite and minuscule earthly human death is up against eternity? Now, I'd never preach this at a funeral. We'd preach about grief and, and working on this and, and dealing with this. But to the living this morning on a Sunday morning, if you're recently dealing with grief, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not aware of anyone, but I don't mean to offend but my goodness, you said to the Lord, I've trusted you with my whole eternal being. Not eternal being, but I trust you for the rest of eternity. How about that? But then things come along like sickness that scare us because they might lead to death. Accidents that scare us because they might lead to death. And I'm not, not somebody just itching to die. But wherein is our fear? What are we afraid of? Nothing bigger than our eternity. I think this goes back to another human problem. We alluded to it a little bit in, in the Bible study class this morning. We are a generation who does not want to learn about God from the Bible. We want to use God's Bible to figure out how it can help us in our lives. Well, the way that God's Bible is going to help you with your life is learning about God. In the Bible. In fact, having an intimate relationship with the God of the Bible, that's how the Bible is going to help you. It's the same way with our salvation. I think many of us have been convinced if I will do the religious ritual, come down, say a prayer, get baptized, take the Lord's table, well, then I've done my part in this deal with God who won't let me go to hell, who won't let me die in my sin, when I will die, lets me have bliss forever. So it's a good deal, and I'm on board with that because I'm a logical thinker. What's missing? Faith. Faith in the gospel, which is what? The power of God into salvation. Power. My point being very bluntly, you're not a believer. You're not saved. You're someone who said, like a car deal, I like the car, I like the price, sort of like the guy, I don't like him bad enough to leave, so I'm going to buy this car from him, it's a good deal, now I've got the car. You've made a transaction for your salvation. Well, it doesn't work like that on human's terms. Jesus made the transaction with God. He paid the price. You've been purchased. The transaction's already been made. What's your role? By faith, receive that gift And be in this relationship with God. 
But as humans, we needed to be more tangible than this, so we've created this whole other system, and it's why we can't sing Revive Us Again wholeheartedly and really mean it and expect God to actually do it right in the moment as we sing it because we're not willing to take those steps that it would require for Him to actually revive His people. They get to the house. The people laugh. They were wailing. Jesus said, she's not dead. Jesus says, well, you all can just leave. And he lets Peter, James, and John go with him. So it's Jesus, the girl, and her parents. Let's read that from verse 51. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in. Say, Peter, James, and John. That's important. There were, uh, I think, three times in his ministry. The Mount of Transfiguration here. Who knows the other one? What was it? Yes, Gethsemane, that's right. There are three times where these three were kind of inner circle with Jesus there. So that's important. And the father and the mother of the maiden, and all wept and bewailed her, but said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. And he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. This miracle proves for us that death is not the end. This is a picture of what will happen to every believer in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8 We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord. As soon as we die, we immediately enter the presence of Christ. Thus the hymn that I love to sing. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? What a wonderful thing that will be. Meanwhile, our bodies rest in the ground waiting for the final resurrection. That resurrection is so absolutely certain that the Bible sometimes defines death as a type of sleep. That's what Jesus says here. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Point being, we can trust Jesus with death. We can trust him with disease. We can trust him with demons. We can trust him with disaster. Four pretty heavy subjects, aren't they? I mean, if, somebody, if you heard somebody's died, that, that changes the day. If you heard you have a disease, that's shocking. You've you got to do something about this. You have a run-in with a demon. That's not an everyday ordeal, right? Or a disaster. We're, we're constantly talking about this tornado and then the flood in Waverly. It's ever before us. How's your faith? How's your trust in Jesus Christ? The Jesus of the Bible, the one that Luke is telling us about here. How he spent his days, how he lived his life, who was around him, the things that he did, the things that he did not do, the things that he taught. Are these reflected in your life? Are you trusting Jesus? And I mean this, and I've tried to illustrate this multiple times during the sermon this morning. This is more than mental affirmation. We evermore live in the day and age of, you know, it's like our voting. What side are you on? You're Democrat or you're Republican? Well, how do we know? For a large percentage of people we know because they say, well, I voted this way or I voted that way, right? And that's it. I'm a proud American. I'm glad somebody died somewhere else so that I could go push this button 
and say where I stand on this thing. That kind of demeans it, doesn't it? It's more than that. You guys, like, I, I still water up. Get, get a frog in my throat at a ball game when the national anthem is sung. I love it. Play ball. <laughs> I'm getting a little teary-eyed right now thinking about it. Because it is more than just that. I'm glad I can vote. I appreciate the ideology that goes into that, but there's more to it than that. But that is one more illustration of how institutional we've made faith. It just isn't going to work like that for you. A good proof text for that is, Jesus said, there are going to be many that come to me on the last day crying, Lord, Lord. They're not crying, you know, church, church, baptism, baptism. They're crying, Lord, saying, you're Lord of my life. And he says, I'm going to tell them, depart from me. We did many mighty name, things in your name. He said, I don't know you. That's what I mean when I say, are you trusting Jesus? You know him, does he know you? I'm going to step in it here. But I'm going to step in it for your benefit. Is that all right? This is risky. Honey, do you know me better now than you did when I was 15 years old? Yes. All right, good. She's kind of like Jack. But I couldn't say there's this other lady in my life that I was going to ask if she knew me better. Now, you can just think that through in your own experiences. Not that part, this part, through in your own experiences. Why that is. I'll be 40 next year. Has your relationship with Jesus grown like that? I mean, we are utterly comfortable around one another. I'm not going to illustrate. But we just are. It flows natural. Who's been married the longest in here? Would you mind telling us? How long, Brother Jim, missed marrying? Can anybody beat 65? Jim agreed. He, that's what he was thinking, too. That's what Jim said. <laughs> anybody beat 65 years and you're, you're still together? Y'all know each other better now? Utterly comfortable around each other? I mean, you just, you're no more comfortable around each other than anybody else in the whole world, right? It's just the way it is. This is how Jesus illustrates what, when he talks about our relation, his relationship with us. You're my bride, I am your groom. He said, I, but he had Paul write to the church and say, I want you to, to make them, the church glorious. So that in Revelation, they could be like a bride adorned for her husband. This is what this time is for of sanctification. Getting us ready for that. So trusting in Jesus should just be an afterthought because we're so busy with all the other stuff because we fully trust Him. But as we work through these situations, I wonder, do we really trust Him? And then to those of you here this morning that I, I hope it's pricked your heart to think, I'm probably not saved actually. I'm not, I'm not in on what this guy's talking about here. Well, let's not overcomplicate it. Whosoever, it's all of you, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourself. The yourself part is what's messing you up here this morning. Give it up. Give up you 
Embrace Him and just go along for the ride. Would any of you say amen that it's a good ride? Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful. Time together with the church and your word. I thank you for our church. That we have the comfortableness with each other that I can talk like this. Lord, I pray that you would remove me from this scenario now and help us to deal with you as you intended from your word. I fail that I fear you all. I fear that I fail you often in that regard. But Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the authority of your word, may the church be edified. May the lost be saved. Bless this time as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and bow our heads and take some time and respond to the word of God.